How far is it to Bethlehem? Not very far. Shall we find the sable room lit by a star? Can we see the little child? Is he within? If we lift the wooden latch, may we go in? May we stroke the creatures there, ox, ass, or sheep? May we peep like them and see Jesus asleep? If we touch his tiny hand, will he awake? Will he know we've come so far just for his sake? Great kings have precious gifts, and we have not. Little smiles and little tears are all we have brought. For all weary children, Mary must weep. Here on his bed of straw, sleep, children, sleep. God in his mother's arms, babes in the byre, sleep as they sleep who find their heart's desire. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I am Marie. And I'm Grace. On today's episode, we are discussing the Christmas poetry of G.K. and Francis Chesterton. Grace, thank you so much for joining me for this Christmas extravaganza today. I'm very excited. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yes. Um, we're we're going to talk about poetry, and I'm very excited about that, um, but also not just for G.K. Chesterton, but also from his lovely wife. So they, I guess, had a devotion to Christmas in a certain sense. Do you yes. know that, Marie? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the poem that you just heard at the beginning of the episode was written by Francis, um, I believe, in 1917 for their Christmas card. And it actually became quite popular and, w- and was published a little bit later. But Chesterton Gilbert and his wife, Frances, they could never have children of their own, but they made a conscious decision from early on in their marriage that they were going to welcome children into their lives, into their life together, however they came. And so they had this lovely way of um, looking after their nieces and nephews, of looking after children in their neighborhood, and basically being parents to whichever children they met who who seemed to need them. And, you know, they were called Aunt Frances and, and Uncle Gilbert to That's many, so many children. So, yeah, Frances was uh, a writer as well. She wrote lots of plays and poems, and they're not as widely known as Gilbert's, which makes sense because she sort of put all of her energy and effort into, uh, you know, his work and um, making his work and all of all that he published possible. Um, but people encouraged her to publish as well, and a few times she did. So you can actually find um, a book of her collected works online. I actually, I don't own it, but I have read some of the things from it and I would recommend it. That's great. I definitely want to put that on my list. Awesome. What are you drinking, Marie? I have today a small glass of Lagavulin, um, which is a really smoky scotch that my husband poured for me. And it is 
a 16 year, I think. What are you drinking? No surprise. I have a Christmas Guinness. <laughs> Guinness is always delicious, especially on Christmas. It is. Uh, Lovely day for a Guinness. Yes, always. So we wanted to just have a little bit of fun on this episode. It's going to be just a little taste of some of their Christmas poetry. And actually, the rest of the poetry we're going to bring up is from Gilbert, but you got to hear How Far Is It to Bethlehem, which was Francis's poem. When David and I went to Oxford and we saw some of their belongings there, when you very first walked in to this uh, room in the oratory, it was sort of like their library and where they keep all kinds of cool things. Like they had a huge dresser. That's what I'm going to call it. I'm sure there's like an official (laughs) Catholic word for it, but this huge dresser with all of these tiny little drawers, like probably 50 drawers on each side. And inside were like letters written by the saints, like actual letters that were written by their hand and like little relics and that's amazing. Different things from, um, yeah, it was so cool. But when you walk in and you look to the right, um, and I don't believe it's there anymore. I think it's in London. There was a glass case of Christmas belongings from Gilbert and Francis. And they had this beautiful little nativity and they had all of these little, I mean, kind of like what you would see in a, in a home today, like little miniature Christmas things. Knickknacks. And decor- <laughs> yeah, knickknacks that were decorations in their house. That. And... Um, there were a couple like framed Christmas scenes that I think Francis had painted and it was really beautiful to see because they had a variety of things from their house but a lot of like two of the shelves were Christmas things so I thought okay Christmas was important to them yeah and um, I had read the woman who was Chesterton at this point and so I, I had heard about her devotion and their devotion to the nativity the incarnation Mm. was something that really touched Chesterton and that comes through in a lot of his works. Absolutely. As Grace has said in previous episodes, um, he is taken by the humility of God. Mm -hmm. He's just struck by it. And the greatest humility that, well, besides dying on the cross for our sins, it's a great humility for him to divine, (laughs) divine, being divine god that he is to become a weak human being for our sake so i think chesterton was was just very taken with that reality and it moved him in his works so i have i have a fun a couple of fun little facts to share oh good so chesterton and francis lived at beaconsfield um it was where their house was located when they settled down and they, um, in, in the woman who was Chesterton, um, Nancy Carpenter Brown, uh, notes that they made the particular decision to welcome all children. <laughs> and so they start hosting all of these plays oh, I love and that. inviting children to act in them. And she talks about how, Francis talks about how children are made with this innate desire and love for play acting. And for the lighthearted, genuine, and just fun nature of acting out plays, and that there's this creativity that they just love to take part in. And one of the 
Christmas traditions for the Chestertons was an annual Christmas party, which was a children-only event. No adults <laughs> so allowed. Great. Gilbert and Francis would um, indulge the children. They would have like treats for them and like let them stay up late and all these things. And they would have plays, Christmas plays written for them to act out. Um, and it wasn't just like, you know, they'd hand them a packet of paper and then they're acting these things out in the living room. They had so they had created sets, they had props, swords, shields, sewn costumes, and then each Christmas play had a theme. And Frances frequently wrote them because Chesterton was really busy. So, you know, and she loved writing plays, so she would she would do that part of it. Um and it That's says here that something that I I think is just like a lovely observation about the two of them. The children loved Francis in a way that was different from the way that they loved Gilbert. Gilbert was sometimes loud and boisterous. Francis was quiet and loved tea and conversations. Many a young child found in Francis a tender-hearted listener. Mm. That's so lovely. I just, I like picturing them as like Mr. and Mrs. Claus. Chesterton just is giant, you know, being so giant and whatnot and jolly and childlike and excited. And I absolutely that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Christmas is about a baby. It's like Mm -hmm. it it's about children. It really is the child's holiday, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think children especially sense that special role that they have in it, even before Santa Claus was like a raging tradition that sort of made this a more commercialistic holiday. <laughs> right. Um, children knew that this was really special, that like someone special was born on this day, even if mm. their family wasn't particularly religious. Anyway, I think they just made their home a really welcoming place during this time of the year. And I think that mothers who have lost children or mothers who have no children, um, as Francis did not, are, are particularly drawn to the scene of the Holy Family at Christmas. There's just something really that tugs at your heart, and maybe just for anyone, it really tugs at your heart to see the sweet family of three together at the earliest stage of their life together. There was um, a trip that they took together. They went to a number of places. They ended up going to Rome and to Paris and a few other places. But Frances saw this nativity in Alexandria and she wrote a friend saying that it was the most beautiful crib she had ever seen and just was very moved by this nativity scene that she saw there. There are countless examples of how they made Christmas special. I'm hoping that we'll be able to dialogue a little bit about this um, essay that Chesterton wrote called The Theology of Christmas Presents that um, Grace actually shared with me uh, just a few days ago, and I read it for the first time. But I found it to be a really, really interesting essay, not just for then, but certainly for now, and I would say even more so for today's world. In that essay, he basically is proposing that this spiritual but not religious attitude of some of the sects that exist in the world, they sort of suggest that you can have the spiritualism without 
the action of faith without the religion, without the rituals, without the physical things. And there's this hilarious line in the theology of Christmas presents where he basically says, um, Mrs. Eddy, who I believe was a part of the founding of Seventh-day Adventists or Christian scientism or something like that. She was, you know, at the forefront of one of these movements. She says that instead of giving Christmas presents, she's going to sit still and reflect on truth and purity until her friends are better. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) And um, Uh. he kind of goes on for a couple pages basically about how ridiculous it is to talk about replacing those physical acts of giving with spiritual thoughts about what you could do. What were, what did you think um, about that concept, Grace? Yeah, I mean, I just, it's crazy to think of Christianity as anything but incarnational, you know? We're made as body and soul, you know, and we're made as body and soul before the fall. And so there's there's something that is necessary and human and good, you know, about the physicality of our religion, you know? It's yeah. something that God does for us um, on purpose, you know, that yeah. he, he sets it up this way. You know, Jesus is digging in the mud and smearing the mud on the blind man's face in order to make him see. And, um, you know, he's, he's using bread and wine and changing it into his body and blood. He's using, um, water, you know, like you have John the Baptist, like baptizing people in the river, you know, it's like there, it's very tangible. It's very physical. And it's because that we are, you know, and I think that's another thought about, um, you know, Chesterton's focus on humility, uh, the humility of God that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. He sees the beauty that God comes down into our level in order to redeem what has been fallen, you know? Um, Absolutely. He, he gets into the nitty gritty physical reality of um, of the earth and, and redeems it from the inside out. You know, it's not, it's not like he stays out there somewhere away looking down like, oh, silly humanity, you know, you've done everything wrong and now you're left on your own. And if only I can just release you from your body and then you can just be spiritual forever. It's like, that's not what he does. He comes. Well, that's the the Gnostic heresy, right? Right, That the body is bad and the soul is good. Right. And uh, so anyway, I just, I I like this, the last line um, of the paragraph where he's speaking about Mrs. Edie. It says the three kings came to Bethlehem bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. If they had only brought truth and purity and love, there would have been no Christian art and no Christian civilization. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that there's something tangible and that's important. If you look at a person who's living on the street and you say to them, I'm going to pray for you today. I'm going to pray that you have enough food to get through this week. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to hope that your life turns around and gets better. And then you walk away and you go home. Have you really done anything good? And are your prayers really worth anything? God isn't calling us to just spiritually wish for things for people. He's using us to actually help them in the most physical way, in a real way. He's saying, go get that person something to eat. Mm. Give them something to drink. And that's why, I mean, Christ says, when you did it for one of your brothers, you did it for me. Right. It reminds me of Mother Teresa. Um, I think she has a quote where she says something about prayer that, you know, she used to think that she would pray and God would change things. But 
she then realized that prayer changes us and we change things, you know? Um, and I think that wise woman, I know there's obviously, there's obviously something true about God, you know, intervening and, and doing miracles and things like that. But, you know, the ordinary life, ordinary, um, day-to-day life is, is mostly us, um, allowing ourselves as Christians to be transformed in prayer, allowing mm-hmm. ourselves to be um, united to, to the heart of Christ. And then the more united to the heart of Christ we are, the more able we are to go out and to serve the poor, right? To serve our neighbor and to, and to do the things that Christ did while he was walking on the earth, right? That's another um, St. Teresa of Avila, who was Mother Teresa's patron, um, said that Christ has no body, no hands, no feet on earth, but ours. Right. Yeah. Um, so our faith really is incarnational and there's no getting away from that. You know, this is why the sacraments that Christ established have to be done in person. Mm. You can't just wish that someone would be baptized. They have to literally be submerged in water or be poured, you know, have water poured over them. And that's Um, been an interesting thing in this, you know, in the pandemic and the lockdowns that people have been experiencing, you know, um, this, this recognition, I think, and, and even just on a secular level, us realizing our need for, for human contact, you know, like that we need this, this physicality, um, and as Catholics and as, as Christians who, um, who believe in the sacraments, you know, we, we see that like, oh, it's a big deal if mass closes down, you know, it's a big deal if, if I can't, I can't participate in these things. And, and there's a reality of God's spiritual presence in us and everywhere um, that we can tap into, but it's still there. It's something different. It's something um, more profound when you're going through those, those rituals um, that we've practiced since the beginning, you know? Yeah. And they were meant to be, they were meant to be done with our bodies. They were meant to be done in person. I mean, the actions of uh, doing the sign of the cross or, you know, even folding your hands to pray or bowing your head to pray, to get onto your knees to pray, to mm. profoundly bow if you go to an Eastern Rite church, woo-woo. Um, <laughs> you know, you're praying with your whole body. You're doing right. these things physically and they are for a few reasons and two important ones are that we are showing respect for the God who made us by, um, you know, situating ourselves in such a way that we are being respectful in prayer. And then we're also reminding ourselves by what we do of the reality of God and our, our, hum- our humility before him. Um, to get back to the theology of Christmas presents. He talks about the the gifts that we've taken from the East, like all of the bright colors without taking all of the superstition or pagan beliefs that come with them. You know, he's referring to vestments and he's referring to beautiful, what's the word, not decor in churches, but like, yeah, I mean, the yeah. furnishings and things. Yeah. And they're, I, I've heard people say this before, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Grace, that, you know, people, <laughs> I've heard this more often than I'd like to admit, people say, like, why doesn't the church sell all of these gold and silver things and, you know, expensive tapestries and vestments and all of these things and feed the poor with that money? Mm-hmm. Um, 
what what would your response be to that? I'm curious. I know what I oh, yeah. responded. Yeah, no, I mean my first my first response is is this that um the church is first of all um supposed to teach us um something about God, you know. Um but also the church is not just for the rich, the church is for the poor. Um so say we we sell, you know, all of the beautiful furnishings of a church. Um well a church is is one of the only places that is open to everyone um you know in all ages if i'm homeless and i'm on the streets you know and i smell bad or whatever like I, nobody wants me to come into some art museum you know nobody wants me to come or into, their home even right or their home but the church is always open and it's open to everyone and so i can go to a beautiful place and have my soul my spirit lifted by this beautiful art um, and by the liturgy, you know, um, and that is not closed off to me at all, you yeah. know, and that's, that's for them. Um, but the other thing too is like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll sell, sell the beauty of the churches and feed the poor for a time. Um, and then the money runs out and the poor are still poor. And now there's no beautiful places, you know, yeah. um, that are lifting hearts and minds to God. And yeah. so I think it's, it's silly. Like I, I talked to a friend of mine, actually, it's funny you brought this up because I wrote my, my thesis in college on uh, liturgical architecture. <laughs> so oh, beautiful. I'm glad topic. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of a, of a favorite topic for me, but um, I talked to a friend while I was writing my thesis and she had done mission work in Haiti um, among the very poor after, I think there was an earthquake or something that had happened there. Anyway, she went there on mission and she was, um, serving among these people who were just completely destitute, you know, um, and they were asking, you know, for food and things like that. But they, the first thing they were asking for was supplies to beautify their church. Mm. And she was shocked by that, you know, but yeah. I think that one thing we don't think about those of us who live in places that are, you know, well off and we have all the things, the basic necessities met, um, we don't consider, I guess, the gravity of, um, things for our spiritual life as much as those who have no material possessions do. Um, for us, we're so used to the comforts of the world that when we perceive somebody else not having those things, we think that it is the end of the world. Um, but a person who lives this way day in and day out. Um, obviously they need food, obviously they need clothing. Um, but beyond that, the, the very comforts of, of the world, you know, there's some things that maybe should come first. There's some things that are more important. Um, those things that touch the spirit of a person. Um, and so I think she was kind of recognizing that when she was talking to these people. Yeah. Basically, like poor people deserve beautiful things too. Right, right. And like you said, these are these churches are shared spaces for everyone and the poor are meant to be fed by the Christian community mm -hmm. coming together and feeding them. One thing that comes to my mind is is that there are many other things in society that we are frivolous about, um, things that we really don't need, comforts. You know, we think about, you know, speaking of Christmas presents, you know, iPhone 11s. <laughs> yeah, you know, the latest. And iPhone all is. of us, you know, who live in this culture are, are guilty of this, but we, we, 
go for those comforts that are far beyond what we truly need. And there are things besides just food and clothing that is, you know, good for us and good for our soul, you know, and things like that. But um, to have, you know, a reasonably nice home and things like that is, are, you know, that's good. But, um, but beyond that, I mean, we're just sometimes over the top with the things that we Absolutely. spend money on, you know? Yeah. And it's like, what if instead of, you know, uh, destroying our churches, you know, which are for the worship of God, which is the highest thing that we can do as human beings. Um, you know, what if we give up some of our frivolity, um, yeah. you know, when it comes to, to things like just things be way beyond what we need um, yeah. and sacrifice I mean, those things for the service of the poor. I think that's, right. that's more reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And so in this, in this essay, he, he talks about the wise men physically giving the gifts to Christ and thinking of my sister, I can give her some small token of affection and love. And she feels connected with, she feels like God saw her. She feels loved. She feels um, attended to all things that Christ wants, all things that um, gifts achieve. And I think that one of the things that he's saying here is that the, the church is not all austerity and sterile and lifeless. The church is luxurious and colorful, and, and he doesn't want us to make it austere. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wants us to, that's why we have like the seasons in the church where we, you know, we have purple for Advent and Lent, and we have the green of ordinary time, and we have red for the martyrs and black for, um, for funerals and like, all of these colors in the church and and I think we make we can even make Christmas austere or mm. or birthdays or just like celebrations of feasts. I mean we're recording this on the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And um okay, let's talk about garments and necessity and going over the top. I mean our lady literally <laughs> painted herself onto a tilma and it was beautiful and all of these roses in the middle of winter and I mean, there is something luxurious about that. There's right. something rich about that and God's, beautiful. God's love is extravagant. I mean, he He created the world around us and the world around us is extravagant. And I think that's something that, that Chesterton really saw. You know, um, I last time or another episode, we read the passage on rain. You know, he's walking outside and he's just like exulting in the reality of rain. And it's, I think it takes... Um, humble eyes and grateful eyes to be able to see these things clearly, you know, and when we're so distracted by our material wealth and with just like the busyness that we get ourselves in from day to day, I think we miss these things very easily. And uh, part of our faith is, is fighting to hold on to that gratitude, you know, and really see with the eyes of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to talk about another poem. Um, which is now one by Gilbert. Um, I'm going to read it because it's it's only four lines. And oh yes, uh, Grace, I'm just going to have you respond to this one, okay? Sure, yeah. Good news, but if you ask me what it is, I know not. It is a track of feet in the snow. It is a lantern showing a path. It is a door set open. I read this first in Maisie Ward's biography of him. Um, and I just, I love it. <laughs> the, the last line, a door set open, just has so many 
wonderful connotations for me personally. Um, but just in general, like the, the image is so simple, you know, just like a door that's, that's open, you know, but there's, it has so much meaning. Um, all of the, the way downness of life, you know, and, and different things that we're going through and, and things that feel like doors are slammed in our face, you know, and I think sin in general, like on the cosmic level is, is the thing that is weighing us down. And here comes God, you know, to save us. Here comes God to, uh, to open the locked door, you know, to the locked door to heaven. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's so simple, but it's like, I don't know. Simple poetry is some of my favorite poetry, even if it doesn't rhyme or anything like that, you know, because I feel like it's the most profound. Um, I like it when it's short and sweet. (laughs) I agree. I mean, if you've ever been outside on a cold night and then you're approaching wherever you're going to, maybe your parents' house or a friend's house or your own house, and the door is open and there's warm light spilling Mm -hmm. out into the dark night and you hear people's voices from inside and you hear laughter or maybe music. When I go to my parents' house, I almost always hear one of my brothers who plays their piano all the time and it's just like flowing out. And that is so inviting. Right. And it reminds me of what you read, Grace, um, previously, uh, the invitation to the whole world. Oh, right. <laughs> Chesterton wrote that little invitation to the whole world. And everyone was invited to tea in that invitation on Christmas Day. Did you yes. notice that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I love that. It's because Christ is inviting all to come in and to be at home with him which is something that he talks about in um, in that essay. He talks about, like, and in other poetry, that we're homeless and unless we're with Christ. Um, so beautiful. Too, just the, the like, uh, surprise. Like, the incarnation was something that was definitely prepared for in the prophets, but it was not something that people had yet really experienced yet right so they didn't really know what that meant and um what the surprise of the incarnation i think really touched chesterton and the surprise of being alive the surprise of anything that he saw and when you think about these things like uh, you suddenly see a track of feet after you're tracking someone like i'm i'm imagining even, going back to the blue cross when we read that and valentine is um you know, sees the the soup swatter on the wall and it's a surprise. And he's like, oh, like there's something there. Like there's a pathway. There's something that I've discovered, you know, something so simple. And yet it just like brings up this surprise. So the track of feet in, in the snow, the lantern suddenly showing a path, you know, it's like, oh, like this, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Like I felt stagnant and I felt closed and now there's this path, you know? Yeah. And so I just, I think it's so relatable. All right. So I want to read the house of Christmas. This was written, I believe, in 1911. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand, with shaking timber and shifting sand, grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes, and strangers under the sun and they lay their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes 
and chance and honor and high surprise, but our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know in a place where no chart nor ship can show under, sky, under the sky's dome. This world is as wild as an old wives' tale and strange as the plain things are. The earth is enough and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings and our peace is put in impossible things where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come. To an older place than Eden, and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless, and all men are at home. It's so good. So good. I just, the whole imagery of, of being homeless, and we get so caught up trying to, I guess, find or make a home in this world, but ultimately it's not. Yeah. And so yeah. the stable being this, you know, the son of man has nowhere to rest his head, right? Like it's um, something that is beyond what we experience here. And yeah. so I think all of us can relate to that. Um, I, I love the, the part where he says, um, let's see, for men are homesick in their homes. Um, it's like, even when we are at home and we have the family all around, and even when things are, are good, there's still this twinge of something that's not quite it, completed. Not complete. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think all of us can, can relate to that, especially if we have experienced Christmases or being at home where it's not something that is, you know, the best situation. I think all of us have experienced that at different times, you know, um, frustrations and, you know, the family or whatever. And we should sort of lean into that, you know, that there's, there's a reality that is present there that is ultimately meant to help us along for heaven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I find this poem very comforting because, thinking of uh, God making himself homeless so that we can be at home with him is just the greatest gift that we could ever be given. I don't even know what to say other than that. <laughs> it's just so good. It speaks for I itself. I think you all should go read the poem again. Yeah. Oh, actually, we'll link this, um, we'll link this page of poetry that we, that we found and please, please go read um, the essays and, and the poems there because I think it will make your Christmas celebration and prayer so much deeper um, than it would be otherwise. Were, were there any other poems, Grace, that you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? Um, I think I'll read one more called The Wise Men. Um, this one's a little bit earlier on from 1905. Um, there's a lot of really good things in here. So, um, so I'll read it real quick. Step softly, under snow or rain, to find the place where men can pray. The way is also very plain, that we may lose the way. Oh, we have learnt to peer and pour on tortured puzzles from our youth. We know all labyrinthine lore. We are the three wise men of yore, and we know all things but the truth. 
We have gone round and round the hill and lost the wood among the trees and learnt long names for every ill and served the mad gods naming still the furies of Eumenides. The gods of violence took the veil of vision and philosophy, the serpent that brought all men bail. He bites his own accursed tail and calls himself eternity. Go humbly, it has hailed and snowed, with voices low and lanterns lit, so very simple is the road that we may stray from it. The world grows terrible and white, and blinding white the breaking day. We walk bewildered in the light, for something is too large for sight, and something much too plain to say. The child that was ere worlds begun, we need but walk a little way, we need but see a latch undone. The child that played with moon and sun is playing with a little hay. The house from which the heavens are fed, the old strange house that is our own, where tricks of words are never said, and mercy is as plain as bread, and honor is as hard as stone. Go humbly, humble are the skies, and low and large and fierce the star, so very near the manger lies that we may travel far. Hark, laughter like the lion wakes, to roar to the resounding plain, and the whole heaven shouts and shakes, for God himself is born again, and we are little children walking through the snow and rain. I was so moved by this poem. Just so many themes, the refrain of humility, like go humbly, um, speaking. It reminded me a lot of The Convert, the poem that we read in our first episode um, that Chesterton mm-hmm. wrote the day that he converted mm-hmm. uh, to Catholicism. And he talks about all the wise men, you know, he talks about all the, the people, the philosophers and the psychologists and like, you know, all the people that, that are giving pathways and giving, you know, direction or whatever for life. And it, it's like, <laughs> I just love the line. We are the wise, the three wise men of yore, and we know all things, but the truth. Um, yeah. And when we come face to face with the truth as the wise men did, it changes everything, you know, and it's, it yeah. makes us come alive. Um, also love the line that speaks of the serpent. Um, mm. It says he bites his own accursed tail and calls himself eternity. And I just thought that was so great. You know, it's like like a dog chasing his tail or something, you know, yeah. that it's just this, uh, it's not really eternity. It's just, it's fake. It's counterfeit. It's, um, it's pride, you know, to think that you're greater than you are, you know. Yeah. Um, and it keeps you in a small space. Yeah. And I love the line that the child that was air worlds begun, the child that played with moon and sun mm. is playing with a little hay. I loved that as well. That really stuck out. It's to like me. we've said this before, beauty ever ancient, ever new. It's like this new person, this new little baby, this gift from God, God himself, but also has existed from all time. And played with moon and sun and is playing with a little hay. It's such a beautiful image. Mm. Yeah, I, just, I love considering God as a child, you know. Um, and, and I hadn't really, I guess, in terms of like Jesus as a child, but, but God, you know, from all eternity as childlike, you know, Christ tells us that the, the children are those who enter the kingdom. Um, and I think that's because... The children are those who are truly in the image and likeness of God, you know, um, that like God himself somehow is like a child um, and 
I don't know, that seems to be a big theme with Chesterton. And I think there's a, the quote, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a quote that Chesterton said about uh, the sunrise and how God is like a child who says, like, do it again, do it again. Yes. Um, uh, the sunrise. He says it in orthodoxy. I'm interested in the, the stanza that says, the house from which the heavens are fed, Bethlehem, house of bread. Mm. Eucharistic. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. Old strange house that is our own. As you said, the church is for everyone. Mm. Where tricks of words are never said. There's this honesty. And mercy is as plain as bread. And honor is as hard as stone. Mm. And I was just thinking about this. And it's so infrequent that our mercy is as plain as bread. Oh, that's so true. I mean, how often do we think we're having mercy on someone, but we have other motives or we're not really being merciful? We're we holding have, back or something. There's yeah. maybe a little bit, but it's not everything. There's know? maybe some mercy, but there's also maybe some resentment or it's just so imperfect. And I feel mm -hmm. like not only is this Eucharistic imagery of him offering himself as the daily bread, as our daily bread. Um, but it's also just talking about this mercy that is nothing else. It is just merciful, perfectly merciful. And the honor of the Lord is unchanging. It's hard as stone. Can't be manipulated. I thought of a diamond there and how, you know, it can't be altered by, by many other things. Right. Real mercy is shocking. Um, and real honor doesn't draw attention to itself because it doesn't need to right? Um, it's, it's obvious. <laughs> it stands yeah. out. Um, yeah. Another, another line that I really loved is right after that. Um, so very near the manger lies that we may travel far. I thought that that was really great too, because it's speaking of the incarnation again, as this way to follow God you know, he comes into our midst, into the deepest, darkest places, even into death itself, and then brings us back up. I was thinking of theosis, you know, that the manger is near, God is near so that we can travel far, so that we can go beyond our nature, you know, and into God. Um, and the, we can do the impossible with his help. Right. To become like God. Namely mercy, <laughs> which seems yeah. impossible yeah. many times, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. Such a, it's a profoundly humbling time of year. I will say that. And today is such a day of joy, Christmas yes. day, you know? Yes. I think, you know, we were discussing um, feast days earlier today and it is not insignificant that the church has set aside days as feasts and solemnities um, something so sacred and so earth-shattering happened on this day. It is a solemnity. It is a reason to shout from the mountaintops that we are Christian and that we love God. I mean, this we were given the greatest gift on Christmas, um, second only to, our, you know, the gift of our salvation at Easter. But right. I am proud to be a Christian, and I hope that I can be the kind of Christian that Chesterton is presenting here, the one who gives gifts generously and without 
really any hesitation. The one who loves the Christ child and is just filled with gratitude for what he's done for us. Speaking of gratitude. Yeah, I want to try something a little different this week if you okay, are open yeah. to it. Let's go. Um, since it's Christmas, I thought maybe we could talk about um, our best Christmas memory oh. instead of our, what we were grateful for this week. Right. Okay. Can you go first? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So um, I have sort of a, a repeating Christmas memory from some years when I was a kid, but this is one of my favorite memories. My family has a tradition of opening our Christmas stockings before Mass and opening presents after Mass. And so we, we wake up in the morning. We have Lebanese food that oh, was yum. left over from the night before. And it's just even more delicious day two. And then when we were kids, we would all crawl into my parents' bed, which was a king-size bed, but seven kids crawling into a bed <laughs> is still a lot of kids. But it was just so cozy and so yeah. much fun. And we would open our stockings. And I think, you know, we all knew the gifts were from our parents, but that the reason that this day was so special was because of our faith. Mm. And that time when we were just like so united and so close as a family like all cozy in my parents bed before we would you know run and get ready for mass it's just one of the best memories that i have of my childhood i absolutely loved it that's awesome i'm thinking nothing i guess in particular but Every once in a while, we would go for Christmas to my grandparents' house in Annapolis, Maryland, and they lived um, just down the road from the Naval Academy. My dad and my grandfather both went to the Naval Academy, so it was big, big in my family, and uh, Annapolis had the type of weather that I was not used to being from the Deep South um, for Christmas, which was really fun because yeah. when you spend Christmas in South Alabama... Um, usually there's a Christmas tornado or a thunderstorm or something like that, you know? So it's, um, it's not exactly a winter wonderland. So when we went to Annapolis, it was just like something out of a storybook to me. And my brother and I just loved going to their house. They had this sort of colonial style, um, this big white house and they would decorate it all for Christmas and have lots of Christmas trees and different rooms and it just felt like this perfect Christmas house out of a Christmas card or something. And mm. um, every once in a while it would snow um, for Christmas, but it was just, I don't know, candles in every window and, and things like that. And it just, it was sort of the quintessential cozy um, Christmas memory. And just like spending that with my family would usually go to evening uh, mass, the vigil mass on Christmas Eve at the Naval Academy Chapel, which if anyone's ever been is very big and beautiful and the full choir of midshipmen would sing and it was just lovely. So lots of good memories from Annapolis. Yeah, what a beautiful memory. Awesome. Well, next week we are going to be discussing the Queer Feet mm -hmm. and we are really excited to talk about that with you. It is another Father Brown. We would love if you would read it ahead of time. It will not take you very long. We will link it as usual. So until then, I hope you have the most beautiful holiday with your families. And we will be praying for you. Please pray for us. And we will see you on January 1st in the new year. Yay. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. 
Cheers. Cheers.